made a couple of changes. First of all, after last week, I first of all realized I tried to stuff too much into one sermon. But secondly, um, I decided to shift and go with the uh, modernized version of the confession. It just updates a little bit of the wording, makes it a little smoother reading. So um, maybe that'll be helpful. So this is chapter 7 from um, the Confession of Faith in Modern English. It comes from the Founders Press, from Founders Ministries. Um, all right, so this afternoon I would like to give you just the briefest overview of chapter 7 on the doctrine of the covenant. This chapter touches on another of what I said at the beginning of our series was going to be four distinctives, at least for our purposes, four distinctive features of this particular um, confession of faith. The first distinctive feature was that this confession of faith is Calvinistic in its soteriology. And that may, um, that is uh, the position from which uh, my teaching, of course, has come. Not that necessarily everybody in the church is on the exact same page, but um, this doctrinal statement is Calvinistic. Secondly, and for our purposes today, it is covenantal. This confession is covenantal in its hermeneutic. And so we want to talk about that for a few minutes by way of introduction. What is a hermeneutic anyway? Um, it's sort of uh, just a big word to describe the principles of interpretation of a text. Um, there's a bit of an art and a bit of a science to interpreting any literary text and the principles by which one interprets that text are called hermeneutics. So there is a hermeneutic that is um, that coincides that that is that comes from this confession of faith and is um, in agreement with this confession of faith that we might call a covenantal hermeneutic. And I want to give you real quickly this morning this afternoon, four sort of identifying characteristics of a covenantal reading of the Scripture. Number one, a covenantal hermeneutic recognizes the, the centrality of the covenant concept as a unifying theme in the Scripture. Recognizes that the idea of God's entering into covenants with people that you have throughout the Bible from the beginning to the end is a unifying theme of the Scripture. Number two, a covenantal hermeneutic reads the Old Testament Christologically, really reads the whole Scripture, the whole Bible, Christologically. That is with Christ as the center. That Christ is the one that all of the Scripture points to. Another way to say this is that it reads the Old Testament and reads the Bible redemptive historically in the context of redemptive history and, and in terms of where that redemptive history is pointing, where it's going, with Christ as its goal or its end. So you can say that Christ is the center, or another way to say it is that Christ is the end or the goal of all that the Scripture reveals. Or another way to say this is that, that covenantal hermeneutics reads the Old Testament typologically in terms of types and shadows, and their reality, and their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So that's the second. Number three, a covenantal hermeneutic understands the church of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. It understands the church of Christ as the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. That when God gave Abraham promises, Israel promises, David promises, when he made these predictions in the prophets, that they were pointing ultimately to Jesus Christ, to His coming. And then fourthly, a covenantal hermeneutic sees a progressive revelation of the gospel throughout the course of the Bible. The gospel is progressively revealed from the very beginning, the one and the same gospel all the way through from the scriptures. So I think that's a a basic starting point. And if I think the... Another hermeneutical uh, position, another place that people come from in terms of wanting to understand and the Bible and read the Bible um, and interpret the Bible, the the one that this would naturally contrast with is dispensationalism. And uh, dispensationalism, in contrast to a covenantal hermeneutic, does several things. Number one it tends, at least in my view, as a more of a covenantalist, it tends to read the Old Testament literalistically rather than Christologically. It tends to read the Old Testament in an overly literal way rather than seeing it as a typological um, revelation that points to the Lord Jesus Christ as the ultimate fulfillment. Secondly, dispensationalism maintains a sharp distinction between Israel and the church that's not supported, I think, in my view, uh, by the New Testament writers' interpretation of the Old Testament itself. So a sharp distinction between Israel and the church. And thirdly, Dispensationalism posits a greater discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament than I think is warranted by the Scripture. Um, The earliest forms of dispensationalism actually even posited that there there could be two different ways of salvation, one by works and another by faith. But um, this is... um, uh, again, I think mostly uh, abandoned by uh, even dispensationalism today. <clears throat> Most people, when they think about differences between dispensationalists and covenant theolo- theology, tend to think of eschatology. That's the most visible difference. So dispensationalists, you probably know, tend to be premillennial. In fact, they tend to be a specific type of premillennial that is a pre-tribulational premillennialist. And I won't go into all the eschatology now, but um, covenant theology tends to fall down towards uh, uh, amillennialism or postmillennialism, generally speaking. Um, although I'm sure there's, there's uh, differences among people on, on both sides. But while eschatology is the most obvious difference, 
to most people. The most significant difference, I think, by far, is the way that these systems read the Bible, their methodology, their principles for reading and interpreting the Scripture itself, especially the Old Testament. I'm pretty sure I've shared it before, but let me just uh, give you a, a little bit of my journey uh, theologically on this on these points. Um, I grew up, as maybe some of you did, in dispensational circles, and uh, I remember that one of the first challenges to my reading of the Scripture, the Old Testament in particular, came when I began to open up and read the New American Standard Bible. So my dad gave me a copy of the New Testament version of the New American Standard that had just come out back in the 60s when he was in college, and he kept it all those years. He gave it to me, and I started to read that, and I noticed that in the New American Standard, they actually, when, they, when the New Testament quotes, or at least when it quotes the Old Testament, it capitalizes it. And I began to notice that for, sad to say, the first time it really dawned on me how much the New Testament actually quoted the Old Testament, how much the New Testament writers were relying on what came before. Sad, again, on, sad on my part, that was, it, was, it was a kind of a shock to me. But it began to be a real help in that as I noticed that, I began to go back then into the Old Testament, look at those texts in their original context, and to try to understand what the New Testament writer was doing by quoting that Old Testament passage, how he was using that text, how he was applying it, how he was what he said it referred to. And I came to the conclusion that the way that the New Testament writers were interpreting the Old Testament was not the way I was doing it. Is not the way I thought it should be done. They were doing it much more typologically than I thought. Uh, not as, in my understanding, not as literally as I thought it should be done. And uh, I began to ask myself, is that the way I'm supposed to interpret the Bible? And I began to uh, question other um, dispensationalists who basically gave me this answer. Well, the New Testament writers interpreted the Bible Christologically or, or, or typologically or redemptive historically, but we shouldn't. They could because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, so they had additional insight from God, direct revelation that we don't have, so we shouldn't interpret the Bible that way. So then I came to ask myself, well, why? Why do I interpret the Bible the way I do? Why do we interpret the Bible the way we do? Um, and the answer came back from my dispensational background. The answer was, well, because it just makes sense that if God were to give us a revelation, he would speak as plainly as possible. And I had to ask myself, well, does that make sense? And where did that principle come from? Uh, and the answer was, it just makes common sense. Wouldn't you, if you were trying to communicate something, wouldn't you just speak as plainly as possible? 
Well, ask that to an artist. <laughs> ask that to a poet. Ask that to uh, someone in, in a different culture and see if, the, see if the way he communicates is the same way you're going to communicate. Um, and the truth is that I don't want, I didn't want to just accept that this is the way we ought to read the Old Testament because it, quote unquote, made common sense. There really seemed to me to be, at the end of the day, in my thinking, and this is just my journey, there seemed to be to be only two choices. Number one, to assume the validity of this hermeneutical principle that I'd been taught that's based on, quote unquote, common sense. Or two, let the New Testament, let the inspired writers of the New Testament teach me how to read my Bible. And at the end of the day, for me, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a choice. It was no contest. And that marked a major turning point in my own particular theological journey that would continue to shape me, and I would continue to be shaped by it um, as, as I grew. And uh, I hope still being shaped by it. So... Uh, if that uh, if that rings any bell, it may it may uh, ring some bells with you, or maybe you don't know what I'm talking about, and that's fine. But uh, I'll just try to uh, to go through this the best I can. Baptist covenant theology um, is distinctive from dispensationalism in the way it reads and interprets the scripture. It's also somewhat distinctive from other forms of covenant theology distinct from a kind of a paedo-baptist version of covenant theology. Um, and it does seem that there was a diversity within covenant theology out of which the Baptists um, grew uh, in their um, expressing of that covenant. Even while we share the same foundational principles, the Baptists did have a distinctive expression of that covenant theology that is uh, outlined here in chapter 7. So we'll go through it quickly, uh, but first I wanted to take about 15 minutes, I think it is, and show a video overview. Uh, this comes from a uh, website called 1689federalism.com, and it gives a, uh, a Reformed Baptist uh, view of covenantalism. So Let's uh, let's watch that, and then I'll we'll go through the confession. Just the biggest, broadest uh, way possible here uh, this afternoon. Let me give you three basic points. All right. So you know, you heard a lot of words there, and some of it you're like, yes, I got that, and maybe some of it you're like, I'm not sure. Let me just give you the three basic, um, uh, the basic points of covenant theology. Number one. Covenant theology uh, recognizes in the beginning uh, a covenant of works into which um, man was in which man was related to God by which man was related to God a covenant of works. This is a relationship that God had that God established with Adam in the Garden of Eden, a relationship by which if Adam obeys, then he lives, and if he disobeys, then he dies. In that sense, it's called a covenant of works. 
Adam, of course, failed to keep that covenant, and as a result, he was cast out of the garden. This covenant of works is then reinforced typologically in Old Testament Israel. Old Testament Israel and through, in, in, through many of their covenants as well. And uh, Israel, of course, like Adam, failed to obey. Again, the law says if you obey, you will live. If you disobey, you will die. Israel, like Adam, disobeyed God and were expelled from the land, just like Adam was expelled from the garden. The covenant of works then, thirdly, was, and was uh, kept by the new Adam, right? So here's the first Adam, he failed. Here's the typological son of God, Israel, who fails. And here is the true and ultimate son of God, Jesus Christ, who obeys God in every respect, fulfills the law, and fulfills the covenant of works, thereby securing salvation for us. That's the idea of the covenant of works. Then the secondly, covenant theology has the idea of a covenant of grace. This is the unfolding of God's gracious salvation throughout covenant history. This covenant of grace was originally revealed in promise form throughout the Old Testament era, first in the Garden of Eden. You remember the, uh, right after God pronounced the judgment on the serpent, then he said that your, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, right? That's the first pronouncement of God's gracious doing for man what man fails to do for himself. And that's the nature of the covenant of grace. God does for us what we fail to do, what we cannot do for ourselves. God steps in, fulfills his own covenant of works, thereby creating a relationship of grace in which we may stand before God. This covenant of grace is first revealed in the garden. It's reinforced in a number of ways throughout the Old Testament. God makes to Noah a promise that there will be no more curse to, uh, to, in, a certain, uh, in a certain typological way. He uh, makes to Abraham a promise of a, of a seed. He makes to Moses the provision of sacrifices, which point forward to Jesus Christ and the, um, and the priesthood that points forward to Christ. He makes promises to David of an eternal kingship that will come from him. And ultimately, this covenant of grace is formalized. It's formally made in the blood of Jesus Christ, inaugurated at the cross. So Jesus Christ then seals the covenant of grace in his blood and his death inaugurates the new covenant. We realize then all of this is to say that you and I relate to God in one of two ways, right? Here they are. Either in terms of the covenant of works or we might say in Adam we relate to God or in terms of the covenant of grace or we might say in Christ. Adam is the head of the one covenant. Christ is the head of the new covenant. You relate to God either in terms of works or in terms of grace. Then there's one more element in covenant theology, and that is the idea of the covenant of redemption. And that is that the covenant of grace is actually the outworking of the covenant of redemption in time. Remember we talked about 
um, the decree of God, God's decree, his plan to to accomplish everything uh, that he intends to accomplish in the history of the world, then his providence is the outworking of that decree in time. In a similar way, the covenant of grace, God's providing salvation, is the outworking in time of the covenant of redemption. So what's the covenant of redemption? The covenant of redemption is that that uh, agreement within the Trinitarian God before the foundation of the world. It's equivalent to the decree of salvation in many ways. We read about that decree in places like Psalm 2, where remember that the Son of God says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations. So what is the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption is the plan of God to provide salvation. God the Father would provide salvation, the Son would execute that salvation, and the Spirit would apply that salvation to all that the Father had given to the Son. So God, all of this is to say that God's gracious salvation comes from the mind and the heart and the plan of God manifest in time the covenant of works showing us our need for salvation and the covenant of grace revealing our salvation to us in Christ. All right, then that just brings us to the actual definition of it. And I will uh, I will forego some of the things I was going to say about this just because we don't have time. But let's at least read it, uh, this chapter on the covenant. All right, paragraph one. Um, this is the general necessity of a covenant. The general necessity of a covenant. Paragraph 1. Though rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their creator, the distance between God and these creatures is so great that they could never have attained the reward of life except by God's voluntary condescension. And he has been pleased to express this through a covenant framework. Right? Number one, we can't reach up to God. We cannot obtain eternal life for ourselves. We are at our best unprofitable servants. There is no relationship, no merit apart from the condescension of God. That condescension comes in the form of covenant. Even Adam's relationship with God in the Garden of Eden was in one sense a gracious condescension of God. Paragraph 2. See, that was all. That was quick on paragraph 1, wasn't it? Uh, Paragraph 2, this is the specific identity of the covenant of grace. Since humanity brought itself under the curse of the law by the fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. In this covenant, he freely offers to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ. On their part, he requires faith in him that they may be saved, and promises to give His Holy Spirit to all who are ordained to eternal life to make them willing and able to believe. This is the covenant of grace now. And the covenant of grace has a different requirement from the covenant of works, right? Covenant of works said you have to obey and your obedience has to be perfect obedience. If you're going to earn salvation, right, by your works merit salvation by your own obedience, then it needs to be the kind of obedience that pleases God. 
perfect obedience. But if, you're, if, that is, if that is not the way of salvation, and it's not, no man will be saved that way, then salvation will come through the covenant of grace. What's the requirement of the covenant of grace? He says it in the paragraph. It is required on their part. Uh, he requires faith in him. So this, the terms of this covenant are is faith, not works. And notice also the provision of that covenant. God provides through His Holy Spirit to all who are ordained to eternal life. He makes them willing and able to believe. So here's the grace of the covenant of grace that God does in us and for us what we would fail to do for ourselves and brings us to salvation. And then finally, the third paragraph, the significant history of the covenant of grace. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed first of all to Adam and the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. After that, it was revealed step by step or by farther steps until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. This covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between father and son concerning the redemption of the elect. Only through the grace of this covenant have those saved from among the descendants of fallen Adam obtained life and blessed immortality. Humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms on which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence. All of this is teaching that this uh, covenant of grace is progressively revealed throughout the course of the Scripture. It's eternally grounded in the covenant of redemption between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And it is exclusively salvific. In other words, there's no way to be saved apart from the covenant of grace in the mediator of that covenant, which is Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is the sweet gospel of the Lord Jesus that no salvation is in, in any wise comes to God's people except through Him. It's no wonder Spurgeon said, covenant mercies, covenant grace, covenant promises, covenant blessing, covenant help, covenant everything. The Christian must receive if he would enter into heaven. Our salvation is by God's gracious condescension in the covenant of grace, in the head of that covenant, which is Jesus Christ. The demand is that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, rely on Him, and God in His mercy gives you the Holy Spirit so that you would believe and receive His salvation. Well, I hope that is uh, at least an introduction and uh, maybe has brought more questions than answers, but at least we got, we've got to start. And uh, feel free again to answer, ask questions and Maybe I can bring a little more clarity in the weeks to come.